This morning, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and while you're turning there, as Pastor already stated, I'm kind of carrying on with, with the messages that he's been preaching, so I'm tasked with a job that is a, that is a great undertaking, is to come in behind a man who has uh, done such a great job of uh, expositorily going through the passages the passage of Scripture, and then I, I'm tasked with that same job. So I'm coming in behind a man who's done a fantastic job. Uh, and what he's done is what's happening in the church at Corinth here is, is Paul in, in Acts chapter 18 established a church in Corinth. And, and they had, they, where they were at, it was a land mass, and they were kind of a land bridge, as you may know already. Uh, what, what would happen is at Corinth, they would bring the ships in, and there was such a land bridge there, and it was such a task to go around Corinth that they would take the ships and they'd drag them across this about four-mile-long uh, dirt road, basically, to put them back into the water just to save themselves some time. Okay. Now, that being said, Corinth was also a major port at this time. So you had all kinds of different people coming into Corinth, and, and therefore, when you have all kinds of different people coming, you also have all kinds of different belief systems that were coming in. And they had, uh, they had all kinds of different gods that they were worshiping. And one of the things that was coming through was philosophy. Now, and I told last service this, I studied this word philosophy, and it comes from the ancient Greek word confusion. Because that's what it does to me. Every time I try and read philosophy, I get confused greatly. And so Paul was seeing the philosophers coming into the church, and, and we know that God is not the author of confusion according to the Word of God. So the philosophers were coming into the church. They were confusing the body. They were disassembling the body. They were dividing the body. And Paul said, no, it's time to put a stop to this. So he gives us two great illustrations within this passage of Scripture. We're going to be in verses 18 through 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I will ask you if you're physically able, would you stand for the reading of God's written and holy and inspired infallible word? Beginning in verse 18, it says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and again the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Therefore let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. We pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Father God, I thank you for this passage of Scripture that you have found me in today, Lord. And I pray, uh, just, as, just as I'm here, Lord, that you would use me as your servant. Father God, fill me with your Spirit so strong and so great that I would overflow just bubbling, Lord. And that nothing would come out of my mouth unless it be words from you. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we give you the honor and glory for the outcome of the service, knowing that it will be great and trusting it will be. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So carrying on with this theme of unity that's found within the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, uh, the title of this message is Committed to Eliminating Division. Committed to Eliminating Division. Now, the best illustration I can think of this it's me when I was about, I uh, say about 15 years old. I weighed probably 125 pounds. 
I had to run around in the shower just to get wet, guys. I was skinny. I was six foot one, 125 pounds, starting center on the varsity football team. I mean, it made all kinds of sense, right? And, and being center is probably the easiest position you can ever do as far as what you have to memorize. Look, you get the ball to the quarterback and you block the fellow that's in front of you. That's about it. There's not much to it. That's why I was good at the position, because I, I couldn't learn a whole lot of different plays. Well, at this particular time, I was playing for Masters Christian Academy the one year that I went there before. Anyway, so I'm at Masters, and, and we're playing, and the 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 play call was a 99, and I forget what it was after that, but I do remember it was a 99, and a 99 meant a screen play. Now, if any of y'all know football at all, you know a screen play is on offense. You hold your block for three seconds, then you let them go, and you just stand there. You don't have to do anything else after that. Well, I didn't like not doing anything else, and I saw the, air come, the football come airborne, and I decided I was going to catch it. And I never will forget this. Kerry Coleman was my coach at this time. Uh, and... I, <laughs> It was one of those moments where it was just, wow. So I'm running down the field. I let my guy go, and I take off running down the field. I'm going to block somebody else, right? I look up, and here comes a football. And I said, whoo, whoo, I get to catch it. And I reached up, and I caught this football, and immediately I got tackled. Man, I got on the sidelines, and I'm, I look out there, and I'm telling you, every flag that could be thrown was on the field. My coach is up in my face about this far from me, saying some really nice things to me about how good I was playing that day. And... And he, was, he told me, he said, Mark, he goes, if you plan on being on this team, you better learn the playbook. I said, what do you mean, man? It was a 99. He goes, what does 99 mean? I said, screen pass. He said, what does screen pass mean? I said, you hold your block for three seconds and you let them go. And he goes, and what do you do after that? I said, you stand there. He said, what would you do? I said, I ran downfield and caught the football. He said, you became an ineligible receiver downfield, and that's an illegal play. You cannot do that. I said, yes, sir. And he was a whole lot meaner than what I just said about it. Carrie, I love you if you're listening. But anyway, so, so there was different things that happened to me in life, but one thing I understood and I began to understand is in order to be a part of a team, you have to know the playbook, right? And you think about that for a second. If you're going to play football and you're going to play a position on a team sport, then you better know what your position entails. If the quarterback's standing in the huddle and he says, hey, we're going to run a pass play and you're a lineman, no, you cannot go more than five yards downfield. If you do, you'll be like I was. You'll have flags thrown all over the place, an eligible receiver downfield. If you're playing baseball and you're in the outfield and there's two outs and there's a runner on first and you're, the ball's hitting, it comes right to you and you scoop it up and you're at center field and the second baseman's right there, you better know you don't need to throw it to third. You need to get it to the second baseman and let him tag the base game the, the innings over at that point but you have to know the playbook listen to me in our lives as believers God has given us a very descriptive playbook I heard a man tell me one time he said the Bible stands for this basic instructions before leaving earth <laughs> I like that. that. You know, it, it makes sense to me. And, and so when you start to read Scripture and we begin to understand that, that everything in our life should be based off of what the Word of God says, then as we examine this passage, there's two main points that I think we can get from it. So I've only got two points this morning. You say, well, that's a good thing. You've been preaching for 15 minutes. Well, there's four sub-points, so hold on. The, the first point is this. Destruction begins with self-deception. Destruction begins with self-deception. 
This isn't just in our Christian walk either. Y'all need to understand that. This goes for every aspect of life. I don't know of anybody that ever got married and said, you know what, I love this woman, but if somebody better comes along, I'm jumping on it. I'm not going to stay with her. I'm going to move on down the road. Y'all know anybody that's ever done that before? I hope not. The world we live in today tells us that that's how we should be, but the truth is when we love someone, we should stay with them regardless of what we think or what we see. You know, you start thinking about the way that life is and and all the different things that that have been put into our minds, and they're all brought in by this idea of self-deception. See, that man that got married that cheated on his wife, he never went into that marriage thinking that, but somewhere along the line, the enemy put the thought for him to grab a hold of that planted a seed in his mind that said, you know what, the grass is greener on the other side, and this might be okay for me to try. Listen to me, that young girl that walks into the abortion clinic, she never thought about it, but somebody somewhere tempted her enough to put a thought into her mind that it's okay to take the life of this innocent child. See, this is the world we live in. The problem is these thoughts are starting to infiltrate into the church. And it's not of anybody's fault. Look, nobody's to blame for this in particular. What's happened is we have brought philosophy into our own minds and we've thought that everything is okay. In verse number 18, he says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. So we see where the destruction begins within ourselves. Let no one deceive himself. But this goes into the business world as well. If you own a business and you have it in your mind that me and this guy are going to go into a partnership and then somewhere along the line, either you or him one, swindles the other out of money, that's not something that you just thought of going into the business. That's something that a seed was planted in your mind and you were deceived and you fell victim to that. The book of James, I think, describes what temptation looks like in our own lives perfectly when he says, let no, let no one say I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, nor can he tempt. But a man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lustful desires and enticed. And see, our temptation comes from our own desires within our own hearts. And it goes back to this sin nature that we're born with, this disease of sin that, that is birthed into us. People say, why would God make us like that? He didn't. God made us perfect. Our choices made us like that. Mankind has made us like that, unfortunately. So we see this destruction beginning with deception. The first subpoint we'll see is worldly wisdom equates godly ignorance. <laughs> Think about that. Worldly wisdom equates godly ignorance. You say, Mark, are you saying that, that I cannot study anything outside of the Bible and that be okay? That's not at all what I'm saying. Look. What I am saying is that when we study the Word of God and we focus on the Word of God and we get in tune with the Word of God, so much, in fact, that we're following the will of God, then the things that we study outside of the Word of God are going to be of God. You say, whoa, you got philosophical there. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. But that's exactly what Paul's doing. See, what was happening to the church at this time is you had people coming in and they were bringing all of this worldly wisdom into the church and it was sexual worldly wisdom and financial worldly wisdom and all of these other things that had been brought in. And what Paul is saying is, no, it's time to stop it. You need to focus on God first. 
Get your heart right with him first and let everything else fall into play. It makes a difference in the way that we live our lives when we focus on it in that manner. When I can finally take a step back and say, okay, God, I'm foolish except for things in you. You're the only good that's in me. My heart is evil. We talked about the sin nature that mankind has, and it's a fallen man. The song that was sang earlier was so beautifully put when it said, we live in the shadow of this sin. We live in the shadow of this sin. The problem is, it's not just a shadow. It's not. It's engulfing us. And the only remedy is found through the blood of Jesus Christ. The Word of God tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we know that to be truth, but I thank God He doesn't stop there. He says the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. When we look at what worldly wisdom is, worldly wisdom speaks completely against this. What Paul's doing here is he's echoing 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where he talked about the gospel being foolish in the eyes of man. I elaborated on this last service. Think about this. Imagine the gospel of Jesus Christ for just a moment. Think about it on a humanistic standard. You mean to tell me a man was born of a virgin, sent by God. He lived 33 and a third years. He died on a cross. And you're telling me that three days later, later he rose from the grave? Absolutely, that's what I'm telling you. And no, it doesn't make sense to man, but it's not supposed to. That's why it's called faith, where we trust without actually seeing visually what's going on. And we do the research, and we see that throughout history that Christ was seen again after his resurrection. We see that uh, in Scripture it talks about his resurrection, and we know if this is to be our basic instructions before leaving earth, then, then everything that's in it must be truth. You say, well, I want to see evidence of God. I'm telling you right now, look up here. You're looking directly at it. I'm evidence of God. You say, well, how can you say you're evidence of God? I know God's not an overweight, fat, bald man. No. I don't know what he looks like, but I know I'm made in his image. So he must have been pretty good looking if I'm made to look like him, right? Amen. Really? No amens on that one? I thought somebody would. Thanks, honey. <laughs> but we think about how we're made in the image of God, and honestly, I'm the reflection of God and the things that are in me. I, we were talking about in, you know, in a private study we were doing that the, 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 the term male means reflection, and, and how awesome is that, that I am built to be a reflection of God the Father. That's what God designed me to be. That means this, when you look at me, you should be seeing God. And if I am to truly live my life in accordance with the principles that God has given me, if I'm to truly live my life for Jesus Christ as he has died for me, then no matter what I'm doing in life, you should be able to look at me and see him. Right? That's why I keep my head shaved. It makes a nice reflective space for you to look at. But seriously, we need to understand that worldly wisdom equates godly ignorance. The second thing in that point is God's Word is our wise guide. God's Word is our wise guide. There is no wisdom that comes outside of the Word of God. Isn't that crazy? 
Listen to this. He says, for the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God, for it is written, whew, he catches the wise in their own craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. What Paul does is he makes a point, and then he comes in right behind that, and he says, and here's the proof. Right? He says, here's the proof. This is what it looks like. So he quotes the book of Job, he quotes the book of Psalms, and he says, this right here is exactly how you know it to be truth. Because it's scriptural. It's biblical. It's what God has already said. If we believe the word of God to be the holy, inspired, and errant word of God, God breathed, as Timothy describes it. If that's what it is, then why would we look anywhere else? Why would we look to philosophers to try and find out truth? Why would I not just open the Word of God and say, Okay, Lord, speak to me. And through the power, the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, be able to examine the Scriptures and for God to truly reveal a Word to us that we didn't even know, may have, may, may not, maybe not even known it was there. That's the way that our God works. In verse, 20 when he, or verse 19, when he quotes the book of Job, he's quoting from Job's friends who had told Job all of these falsehoods, right? They were saying, Job, don't you recognize that you're the reason that all these things have happened to you? This calamity's fallen upon you, your family's dead, all these things are going on simply because you didn't do X, Y, Z for God. And we know that that ended up not being the truth for Satan was seeking whom he may devour and God offered up Job. He said, have you considered my faithful servant Job? And he said, here he is, God. Or here he is, Satan. And Satan goes, okay, I'm going to do it. And he, and he starts taking all these things and God gives him rules and then those rules get expanded on, right? But it began with you can't touch him and then it began with you can't kill him. If that's how God treats people that are faithful, what's, what's he going to do for us, right? It's scary. But here's the truth of it. Job was a man of God. And when we start to see what his friends were saying, we understand that just because they were not telling the truth when it came to Job's relationship with God and how that was where the calamity was coming from, it doesn't mean that everything they were saying was false. He says he catches the wise in their own craftiness. God sees the foolishness of man through their craftiness. When you think you're slick, God's even slicker. Ain't that crazy? Wow. This is who we serve. So we get to the second point, finally, right? Woo, thank Lord. The second point. If we focus upon all of these things, then when we get to verse number 21, we see our second point laid out plain and clear. He says, let no, therefore, let no one boast in all men. So I wrote down this. Focus not on man. Focus not on man. In other words, look, don't let your focus be on a preacher. Don't let your focus be on a teacher. Don't let your focus be on a president. Are y'all listening to me? Don't let your focus be on a king. Don't let your focus be on a man. 
Listen to me. How many times have you ever heard in your life, you ought to come to our church and hear our preacher. He's the best thing you've ever heard in your entire life. How many of you all have ever heard that before? All of you raising your hand. Uh, evidently, that was not a church I've ever pastored. So I love you all for that. But seriously, that's, that's how we do. We, we hear that. When we go tell people about our church, you need to come. Man, I'm going to tell you, he, he just speaks so great. And then what ends up happening is this. When, when you come in on a Sunday morning and he goes, hey, I'm going to let the college uh, pastor preach this morning, you, you go, man! And you get let down, don't you? It's the truth. What's that old bald-headed joker doing up there? I don't, I don't want to listen to him. But the truth is, we put all of our eggs into one basket so many times, and in life, we're no different than this. But, but we'll, we'll take and we'll say, I'm following this man. And then when the pastor leaves the church, God forbid that happen. Here, Pastor Shane, I don't want you going anywhere. I love you, brother. I don't you go nowhere. But when that does happen, because unfortunately in the, in the ministry, God calls at times. And when he does call away, then you're heartbroken. Because the man you followed after is gone. Let me tell you something, you're following after the wrong thing. If you're here to hear Shane preach a message, then you're following after the wrong thing. If you're here to hear David preach a message, you're following after the wrong thing. If you're here to hear me preach a message, you're following after the wrong thing. You're focusing on the wrong thing. And you say, well, Mark, what should I be focused on when we need to focus on what is ours? Listen to me. We need to focus on what's ours. Know what is yours. Know what is yours. In verse number 21, he continues on. He says, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. You say, well, what does that mean for me? Do I own the entire world? How does that look? What's he saying here? Because that's kind of confusing. He's really getting philosophical, isn't he? Now, what Paul is saying is this. I was listening to a preacher this week, Anthony Carter, and he was telling this particular verse, this verse of Scripture. And he said, look, what happens is, he said, you can go to Exodus, and you can look at it, and you can say Moses is mine, and you can pick Exodus up, and you can put Exodus down. He said, I could go to David and I could say, David is mine. And I could pick up the Psalms and I could read from the Psalms. I can expound upon the Psalms. I could preach from the Psalms. I could put the Psalms down. David is mine. We can go to creation and we look at creation. We can go to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and see the creation of man. And we can say, hey, creation is mine. I can look at it. I can feel it. I can touch it. I can smell it. I can see that it's mine. And we can put it down. But the question I had after listening to that sermon was, what is ours New Testament? Think about this for a moment. What is ours in Christ, New Testament-wise? That means this, Paul is ours. What Paul is saying is, I belong to you. What Paul is saying is, my life is devoted to you. What Paul is telling the church at Corinth here is, you need to focus not upon me, because you need to understand that me and Apollos and Cephas, we're all yours. That means the book of Revelation that John wrote when he was on the island of Patmos, that's yours. The end times, they're yours. That means the present day time, it's yours. That means the words of Christ through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are yours. That means the Sermon on the Mount is yours. That means everything throughout the Bible is yours. That means everything outside of the Bible is yours. Whoo! 
But more importantly than any of it, that means that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, guess who that belongs to? That belongs to us. That's ours. That's where my salvation is finalized. That's where my, and when I say finalized, guys, I mean finalized. When Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me, that was the final word. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There is no other way into heaven but through Christ Jesus. And I'm telling you right now, when you receive Christ, you have a security that lasts for an eternity. And I praise God for it. And you know who that belongs to? Us. <laughs> you say, man, you're passionate about this. Absolutely I am. Because I'm going to be honest with you, because of these things, God took somebody who was an ugly old good-for-nothing nobody, and he made him into somebody. <laughs> He made him into somebody. He gave me a task to do. He gave me a purpose in my life. He gave me an opportunity to share the gospel with others. To be able to lead my daughter to Christ. To be able to baptize her. I mean, come on. Yeah. There's a lot of things that are ours. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, you have to know who you are. Whose are you? Hmm. Continuing with the text, in verse 23, he said, and you, you know, you've got everything, but you, you're Christ's, and Christ is God's. Whose are you? The book of Ephesians tells us that when we receive Christ as our Savior, that we become adopted into this family of God. That means this. God was willing to do whatever it took to get you to be a part of his family. How about that? Think about that. He was willing to do whatever it took so that you could be a part of his family. Isn't that awesome? It's incredible. It goes far beyond anything that we deserve. But he knew the sacrifice that was needed. He gave his son willingly to die upon a cross for your sins and for mine. When I say knows who you are, know who you are, that's who I'm asking you to know. Are you born again? I don't think you can get any more blunt than that. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Look, I'm going to close out now. God's done, I'm done, right? You've heard the gospel presented this morning. You've heard it told what it means to have eternal life. It means this, that you follow Christ, that you allow him to come into your life and to save you and to forgive you for the sins that you've committed in life, which are abundant, unfortunately. Today I want to ask you, right where you're sitting, do you know him as Savior? Would you bow your head and close your eyes for a moment? Do you know Jesus as Savior? Today, if you'd be willing to say, well, Pastor Mark, I don't know Jesus as Savior, but I'd like to. Maybe you've never spent the time, maybe you've never prayed and, and asked God to come into your life. Maybe, there's, maybe it was just that. Maybe it was just a prayer. But there was no heartfelt meaning behind it, and you know that. 
And today you'd be willing to say, you know what, today is the day for me, now is the time for me, I need to give my life to Jesus. If that's you with no one else looking around right where you sit, what I'm going to invite you to do is I want you to have a conversation with God. And understand it's not the conversation that saves you, it's the heart behind it. It's what's going on in here, in your heart. Today, if you'd be willing to say, you know what, I don't know Jesus as Savior, but I want to know how to. How do I talk to God? Well, you might say something like this from your heart to God's God, I'm a sinner. I'm lost. And I know if I were to die today, I'd go to hell. But God, I know that you gave your son to replace my sin. And Father, at this very moment, I want to receive the gift of salvation that you've offered through him. I believe Jesus to be your son. I believe he died on the cross. And Father God, I believe he rose from the dead. And Lord, today I trust him as my Savior. The Word of God tells us if we ask God to forgive us of our sins, he's faithful and just to do just that. So I'd ask you to do this. Father, would you forgive me of the sins I've committed? Lord, make in me a new life. And allow me to live for you. And then thank him. Thank you. Thank you for saving me.